We are in a sermon series called The Final Steps, and while normally we would head into a Christmas sermon series um, going into the Christmas season, we will actually go into um, the Christmas season with the death of Christ as opposed to the birth of Christ, and that's actually not the right sermon title. Um, So I don't know if we uploaded the wrong one, but the the sermon title that's up there is... uh, it should be, what should I do with Jesus Christ? There we go. Um, <clears throat> so we are actually going to go ahead and finish the life of Christ. Um, let, me, let me back up. We're going to finish the sermon series about the final days, uh, the final week of Jesus Christ as we prepare our hearts for Christmas. So it's going to be a little different, uh, but we hope that you'll enjoy it. When we share our testimony with people, when we share our faith with people, uh, because we are evangelical, and that means that we spread the good news, we share uh, the gospel of Jesus Christ with other people, we hope that when we do that, they'll accept our testimony. You know, sometimes you, you maybe share it with somebody, and, and they're like, ah, you're just making that up. You know, when, when, we, when Angela would share her testimony of God healing her, there were certainly people, even friends and family members of ours, that they probably thought we were just making it up. She didn't really have it. Even though she did have a diagnosis from an ophthalmologist, a retinal specialist, that's literally what this guy does for a living, is diagnoses people with macular degeneration. And even though she had that and, and she could testify of the symptoms of that, there were still people who would uh, deny that testimony that God had actually healed her or that God has done this miracle. Oh, it's just... It's just chance. It's just luck. You just got lucky. Or you've just put enough good vibes out in the universe and good things are going to happen, right? Garbage. <clears throat> and so when we share our testimony, it's, uh, we, we hope that people will accept it and accept Jesus Christ as a result. But it's easy for us to forget that there is a spiritual war going on the inside of a person when we share our faith with them. Um, Yes, God wants them to accept the good news of Jesus Christ, but clearly the devil does not want them to accept that. And so he fights with them internally, creating all sorts of obstacles to keep them from being transformed by God's power. Maybe some of you asked yourself these questions. What will my friends think? What will I have to give up? How will this change the way I live? And the answers are, it doesn't matter. Everything and in every way. Your friends, it doesn't matter what your friends will think. It will change. You will give up everything because you are giving up the flesh. You're giving up this life and you're taking on Christ. You're dying to flesh so that you can live in Christ. And how will it change the way you live? It'll change everything. It'll change everything, but in a good way. And so each person who hears the gospel has to answer. They they typically ask themselves those questions, and they will answer the question that is our sermon title today. What should I do with Jesus Christ? So turn to Matthew chapter 27. In your Bibles, or open up your YouVersion app, and that's where we're going to be, Matthew 27. We'll get there in just a moment. Now, chronologically in this series, we have arrived at Friday morning. 
of Passover week, of Passion Week, as it's also called. Jesus was arrested in Gethsemane very late Thursday night, and he was tried by the religious leaders very early Friday morning in a very illegal trial. They had brought in false witnesses who lied about things that Jesus said and did. And what's interesting is scripture tells us that even the false witnesses contradicted themselves so that they could not convict Jesus of any of that testimony because the the liars couldn't even agree. And so finally, they asked Jesus plainly to say if he was the Messiah, the Son of God. In Matthew 26, Jesus replied, you have said so. But I say to all of you, from now on, you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming in the clouds of heaven. At those words, the religious leaders tore their robes and they convicted Jesus of blasphemy because he had just made himself equal to God. Yet the religious leaders didn't want to stone Jesus, which was the punishment for blasphemy. They wanted him publicly humiliated and executed so that this movement would stop in its tracks. And also because it was prophesied in Psalm 22 and Isaiah 53 that the Messiah would be pierced and not stoned. Therefore, crucifixion had to be the way that Jesus would die. But they didn't have the authority to crucify anyone. The Jewish leaders did not have the authority to put someone to death in that manner. So they needed Roman help. That's where we're picking up the story in Matthew 27. Let's look at verses 11 through 14. Now Jesus stood before the governor, which is Pontius Pilate. And the governor asked him, are you the king of the Jews? Jesus said, you have said so. But when he was accused by the chief priest and the elders, he gave no answer. Then Pilate, asked, and then Pilate said to him, Do you not hear how many things they testify against you? But he gave him no answer, not even to a single charge, so that the governor was greatly amazed. We'll start there for a second. The charge of blasphemy that the priests accused Jesus of was not, during their trial, would not have been sufficient for Roman execution. When they brought Jesus to Pilate, they changed their religious accusations to political ones. So instead of claiming he's blasphemed our God, Pilate wouldn't have cared. Instead, they claimed first that he was guilty of misleading the people. Second, that he told people they didn't have to pay taxes. And third, he claimed to be a king. Pilate would view anyone claiming to be a king as a threat to the Roman Empire. And that was the only accusation that Pilate examined Jesus about. He didn't even mention the first two. But throughout this story, Pilate was so concerned with not starting a riot... That was was his driving motivation, preventing a riot. He was so concerned with keeping the peace for the sake of his own career, which is why he let evil things, uh, why he let these things go this far. 
But why? Why was that Pilate's driving motivation? Well, one commentator gives us the backstory on this issue. Leading up to this situation, Pilate already had three strikes against him with Rome over his handling of Israel. Tiberius Caesar had sent Pilate a message saying that if he messed things up again, if there was one more riot in Israel, in Jerusalem, he would be removed from his post. Pilate had made his first mistake as he entered Jerusalem for the very first time as the governor. As his soldiers carried their standards topped with eagles of gold and silver, they walked them into the temple area. The Jews saw the eagles as idols, and they became so infuriated that they rioted on Temple Mount. Wanting to quell this rebellion immediately, Pilate ordered that the rioting Jews be held in the amphitheater right outside of Jerusalem, where they will be slaughtered unless they repented. These courageous Jews laid their heads down on the ground and said, chop off our heads, but there will be 10,000 others to take, their, to take our places if your images ever come on temple property again. Pilate backed off because he foresaw a bloody rebellion and a political strike against him. So he backed down. But word got back to Rome that Pontius Pilate had been bested by some obstinate Jews. A short time later, Pilate actually wanted to bring in, he wanted to make up for his bad start with the Jewish folks in Jerusalem, and he wanted to bring in a a fresh water supply to the city. So he built an aqueduct that would bring in water from the north into Jerusalem. And it was this great engineering feat, and it would be phenomenal For the people of Jerusalem. But the problem was he financed this engineering feat with money from the temple treasury. This infuriated the Jews and blood was shed as Pilate had to put down the ensuing rebellion. When Pilate ordered new armor for his soldiers, the shields bearing the image of Emperor Tiberius Caesar were on these shields, and it incensed the Jews. They considered this a form of idolatry, and so the Jewish folks rebelled yet again. And when Tiberius Caesar heard of it, he was incensed, and he sent the message to Pilate that if there was one more rebellion, he would be out of a job. Pilate had to handle this riot During Passion Week, during Passover Week, he had to handle this riot to prevent the end of his career. Time and again, when Jesus was accused of something, he made no response to the accusations. He didn't need to defend himself. He had done nothing wrong, broken no Roman laws or even biblical ones. In John 18, Pilate questioned Jesus about his alleged crimes. And Jesus responded by saying this, I was born and came into this world to testify to the truth. All who love the truth recognize that what I say is true. To which Pilate replied with this very short phrase in Latin, quid est veritas, what is truth? Jesus offered no response. 
He had already revealed himself as the way, the truth, and the life. But what's interesting is that some people who love anagrams figured out that when you rearrange the letters of Pilate's question, quid est veritas, you get the phrase est vir qui adest. You knew that, right? I had to, I had to Google Latin here, something that I, I had not yet done before. Est vir qui adest, which means he is the man before you. And so even the nuances of Latin testified that the truth wasn't an abstract concept, but it was actually Jesus Christ himself. Let's pick up in verse 15 in Matthew 27. Now at the feast, the governor was accustomed to release for the crowd any one prisoner whom they wanted. And they had then a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. What's interesting is his name is Jesus Barabbas. We'll get into that in a second. So when they had gathered, Pilate said to them, Whom do you want me to release to you, Jesus Barabbas or Jesus who is called Christ? For he knew that it was out of envy that they had delivered him up. Besides, while he was sitting on the judgment seat, Pilate's wife sent word to him saying, Have nothing to do with that righteous man, for I have suffered much because of him today in a dream. Now the chief priests and elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and destroy Jesus. The governor again said to them, Which of the two do you want me to release for you? And they said, Barabbas. Pilate said to them, Then what shall I do with Jesus who is called Christ? They said, Let him be crucified. Pilate said, why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, let him be crucified. As I read scripture, one of the things I think is helpful for me is I imagine myself there in that moment. What would it feel like to be a member of the crowd that day? To be told by these corrupt priests to condemn an innocent man to death. To be, uh, what would it be like to be one of those priests? Having such a full and complete knowledge of God's word and yet be so consumed with hatred for the Messiah that I'm willing to let his blood be on my hands. What would it have been like to be Pilate? facing an incredibly difficult decision to find yourself fighting against prophecy. Jesus had to die. He had to be pierced. He had to be crucified. Yet Pilate had the authority to let him go or to condemn him. Now, Pilate had, there were, there were two primary influences for Pilate's decision that day. The first influence was Pilate's wife saying to him to have nothing to do with the condemnation of this innocent and righteous man. Pilate posed a question uh, that to Jesus that understood that, that showed that he understood the charge against him. He called Jesus the Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one. Pilate and every Jew standing there that day had the claims of Christ's deity put before them. 
The other influence on Pilate's decision that day, if he didn't do, uh, was if, if he didn't do what the Jewish leaders wanted him to do, he might have yet another rebellion on his hands. And so we had these two primary influences, one saying have nothing to do with this righteous man, and the other was this group of men leading a rebellion that could cause this last opportunity for Pilate to continue governing Israel. And we face these same situations in our life today, all the time. The pressure of doing what's right versus doing what's popular. This is a a lesson that we drill into our, our kids, that it doesn't matter if you stand alone, still stand. Stand up for what's right. Stand up for what you know is right. It doesn't matter if everybody else stands against you. You stand. And in essence, it comes down to the fact that people can only do two things with Jesus. They can accept him as their Lord and Savior, or they can reject him and leave him out of their lives completely. And Jesus made it very clear in Scripture that you, there is no halfway position with him. You cannot sit on the fence and try to live both ways, in the world and not of the world. You can't serve two masters. You either hate one and love the other, or you reject one and accept the other. There is no middle ground. There is no way to ride the fence. You can't have one foot in the kingdom of darkness and one foot in the kingdom of light. Revelation chapter 3 talks about the church of Laodicea, where he is, Jesus condemns Christians, a church, for doing just that, being in the world and of the world. So what did Pilate do? Well, the Gospels actually show us that Pilate made six attempts to escape making a decision about what to do with Jesus. First, he kicked it back to the priests. He told the priests to judge Jesus by their own laws because Jesus wasn't guilty of breaking any Roman laws. He hadn't stolen, hadn't murdered, murdered, hadn't assaulted a centurion. He hadn't done anything like that. Therefore, Pilate uh, didn't want to deal with Jesus. And if Pilate didn't have to deal with it, then Pilate couldn't be blamed for anything that happened. To him, this was a Jewish matter. It was not a Roman one. And he certainly didn't think anybody should be executed over something so trivial as believing they were a king. And so Pilate's second attempt came when he examined Jesus and he declared, I find no fault in him at all. The Jews want me to judge you, so I'll judge you. You're not guilty of a Roman crime. There's no evidence, so you're innocent. Now, now that we're through with that, where's lunch? I mean, he was trying to move this along. Let's go. You're not, you didn't do anything wrong. All right, so I judge you. You're innocent. But the people wouldn't let it go. Pilate was told that Jesus was from Galilee, and Herod was in town, and Herod was the ruler over Galilee. He was a puppet ruler, but he was a ruler nonetheless. And there had been tension between Pilate and Herod because Pilate had executed some of Herod's citizens. In Luke 13. And when you do that, there's going to be some tension. And so 
Once again, Pilate tried to escape having to make the decision, and he sent Jesus off to Herod to be judged. Now, this is the same Herod that had John the Baptist executed by chopping off his head. Unfortunately, Herod uh, knew, or maybe he didn't know, but Herod, even if Herod had found Jesus guilty of the crimes he had been accused of, he, did, he still did not have the authority to crucify Christ, which was prophesied. So he mocked him, he beat him with reeds, and he sent him back to Pilate. Pilate then realized he was not getting away with letting Jesus go. The crowd has now become even more angry because nobody is making the decision. And this crowd has now become a bloodthirsty mob. And they're not going to drop it unless Pilate does something. And so Pilate said, you brought this man to me, accusing him of leading a revolt. I have examined him thoroughly on this charge in your presence, and I find him innocent. Herod came to the same conclusion and sent him back to us. Nothing this man has done calls for the death penalty. But to satisfy your bloodlust... I will beat him with a whip, but then I will release him. Pilate thought this punishment would be enough to satisfy their anger. And it was a brutal punishment. But Pilate was wrong. And then Pilate, I feel like I'm telling the Christmas story. And then Pilate had a revelation. He remembered that it was Passover. And during Passover time, they had a custom. And it allowed him to release a prisoner to the people. So he thought this would be the perfect opportunity to defuse the mob. No doubt, there were plenty of prisoners in a Roman jail in Jerusalem. But Pilate, it seems like Pilate wanted to let Jesus go. So Pilate chose the most despicable, notorious murderer he could find in jail. A man named Jesus Barabbas. Now, Barabbas is the conjunction of two Hebrew words, bar, which means son, and abba, which means father. So Barabbas means father's son. You could even give it the common vernacular of saying daddy's boy. Um, But he was a father's son. Jesus, same name as Jesus Christ. So Yeshua, Barabbas, salvation, father's son. It's a very interesting situation. And Matthew is telling us this information so that we can start to see the contrast between the two men. These two men, Jesus Barabbas and Jesus Christ, were the opposite in every single way. One was a murderer. One was a life giver. One was a liar. And the other was the embodiment of truth. One was a thief. The other was the creator of all things. One was a troublemaker. The other was the prince of peace. One was a father's son. And the other was the father's son. Pilate told the people, I will release one of these men, Jesus Barabbas, the murderer, 
or Jesus that you call the Christ. So let's just get Jesus ready to be released. Let's get those chains off of him. And that way we can go about our business. He didn't want to condemn Jesus. But the people, as you know the story, they threw him probably the biggest curveball in the history of the world. They shouted for Barabbas to be released. They would rather have a known murderer running the streets of Jerusalem than to free Jesus Christ. And Pilate must have been stunned beyond words when they shouted, Free Barabbas! Crucify Jesus! Over and over, Pilate tried to get somebody else to make the decision for him. But each time it came back to him until there was no avoiding it. If you remember the show, and I think it may be trying to make a comeback, Who Wants to Be a Millionaire? You remember that show with Regis? You'll recognize that Pilate tried his three lifelines, and each one of them failed him. He phoned a friend when he sent Jesus to Herod and said, Can you help me with this problem? He asked the audience. And, they, and then he found out that they wanted Jesus dead. And then he tried his last lifeline, the 50-50. Jesus Barabbas or Jesus the Christ. These folks chose to free the guilty man and condemn the innocent one. Matthew 27, verses 24 through 26 So when Pilate saw that he was gaining nothing, but rather that but rather that a riot was beginning, he took water, he washed his hands before the crowd, saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourselves. And all the people answered, His blood be on us and on our children. Then he released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, delivered him to be crucified. Pilate finally called for a bowl of water. He stood before the crowd and he took the water and he washed his hands in front of them and he said, I am innocent of this man's blood. His blood is on your hands. Now this may have actually been connected to a Jewish command from Deuteronomy 21. Deuteronomy 21 stated that if a man was killed outside the city and no one knew who specifically the murderer was, the elders were to wash their hands as an illustration of their innocence of the matter. Pilate refused to condemn Jesus because he knew Jesus was innocent of the charges against him. Instead, he made this public declaration, this public demonstration in front of all of them, asserting Jesus' innocence and telling the Jewish leaders they needed to see to Jesus' death themselves. The people responded with those chilling words. We will take responsibility for his death. We and our children. And they did. In 70 AD, the Roman army led by Titus laid siege to Jerusalem during Passover week. And because he did it in Passover week, which is a pilgrimage festival into Jerusalem, 
Titus trapped 1.1 million Jews inside the city. That siege lasted for five months with this 1.1 million group trapped inside the city. Food was running out. And five months after the siege began, it was over. The city was destroyed. Around 1 to 1.1 million Jews were murdered, killed. About 100,000 were enslaved, and the temple was destroyed. The words of the people had come true. They and their children had taken responsibility for the death of the Son of God. Worship team, come on up. Would you stand with me this morning? Even though Pilate made four declarations of Jesus' innocence, he sought to avoid making the decision concerning Christ, but he should have made a favorable decision. The same principle, the same principle is true today. Not making a decision for Christ is the same as making a decision against him. You cannot avoid. Pilate ran out of lifelines. He also ran out of time. He condemned an innocent man and all the water in the world could not wash away the guilt that stained him. Pilate missed the most important question on life's greatest test. What should I do with Jesus Christ? Not one person can avoid the point of that question that's being asked. And nearly 2,000 years ago, Pilate asked that question to the people of Jerusalem. And it's a question that every single one of us must face and answer at some time in our lives. And we could say that every one of us is answering that question in a practical way every single day. You might not answer it consciously. You might not wake up in the morning, roll over and say, Today, I will make Jesus Christ my Lord and Savior. You may have said that years ago. You may not uh, answer it out loud or, or even consciously, but you answer it every day subconsciously. By your every act, by your every thought, your every word is an answer to that question as to what you are doing or what you have done with Jesus Christ. You're either rejecting him by putting him out of your life or you are accepting him by crowning him the Lord of your life. Will you do what Pilate did and decide against Christ? And whether you like it or not, Christ died for your sins. You have to personalize it. He died for your sins. He died for my sins. He died for the sins of the whole world. If you reject him, if you choose to wash your hands of his blood and not make a decision for Christ, his blood is still on your hands because your sin is uncovered. Your sin is not atoned for. You can't avoid making a decision about Jesus Christ. You either choose to serve him or you reject him. Now, if you've been avoiding that decision, don't leave here with blood on your hands. 
Accept Christ as your Savior. Get right with God so that when you die, we will all die, there will be no question as to where you will spend your eternity. You can know today without a doubt that God will open up the gates of heaven and welcome you in. Out of all the things this week for us to be thankful for, we often say thank you for our job and thank you for our family and thank you for our nice home and our nice cars. And we thank God for a lot of stuff that we have. More than anything else, the one thing we should be most thankful for is that God did what we could not do. He died in our place. His blood covers our sins and we have salvation and a promise that everything that is wrong with this world will be made right, that God will restore all things. As he said, behold, I make all things new. So this this Thanksgiving weekend, the greatest thing for us to be thankful for is the salvation that we have in Jesus Christ. So if you have not made that decision, accept Christ as your Savior. Ask forgiveness of your sins and enter into new life with Christ. Then you'll truly be thankful and grateful for all that he's done. Worship team is going to lead us in a song, Jesus at the center of it all. And if Jesus is not at the center of it all in your life, he needs to be. So as they sing, would you just let these words sink in? Maybe you have something you need to ask forgiveness for. You sinned against God. You you did something or you should have done something that you didn't do. God wants to be, he wants you to be in right standing with him. This is a great moment for you to say, Lord, forgive me of my sins. Cleanse me of my unrighteousness. Create in me a clean heart and renew a right spirit within me. That he, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. We have that promise. We can be right with the creator of the universe. As they sing this morning, just let the Holy Spirit shine a searchlight on your heart and reveal any area that needs to change. Then I'll come back and close this in prayer. You know, I was reading a, a book this week and the author was talking about how we as Christians, um, we need to remember that the presence of God is with us. The Holy Spirit is with us. And that means that God is with us everywhere we go. God's omnipresent, obviously, but but his spirit indwells us and goes with us everywhere we go. And so if we make Christ the Lord and Savior of our life, then that means that the presence of Christ is with us. He's with us at work. He's with us at home. He's with us with our kids, our grandkids. His presence is with us. He's with us in our downtime, our leisure time. He's with us in those moments where we think we're hidden, where we do things because nobody else is around. Those opportunities, sometimes we are tempted and we engage in that temptation and sin against the Lord. One of the ways that we can truly allow Christ to be at the center of our life is to remember that he is with us, that he is God with us. His presence is with us. It goes before us. He's around us. And the Holy Spirit is inside of us and indwells us. And so when we face those temptations that 
will erode the place of Christ in our heart. We need to remember that Christ is with us. And he is encouraging, the Holy Spirit is encouraging us not to give in to those temptations, not to sin against him. You know, it, it, my growing up in church, it was, it was guilt trip every Sunday. You know, Jesus sees everything you do. Don't make Jesus ashamed. And, and, you know, that really scared the daylights out of me. But the reality is that if my dad were in the room, would I do that thing? Would I, would I commit this sin? Would I steal that, say that, do that, whatever? How much greater of a father figure is God to us? And because we can't see him, sometimes we forget he's around. But Christ longs to be made known through us and we prevent that really from happening when we are engaging in sinful things God wants to break the power of sin in our life he wants to be the center of our life so that everything that radiates out is Christ not us you know what happens when you radiate flesh when you're sitting in traffic somebody cuts you off when a co-worker sends a snide and sarcastic email making you look bad to the boss. When flesh is at the center, lots of bad things come out. But when Christ is at the center, the fruit of the Spirit comes out. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, self-control. Not the fruit of the flesh, but the fruit of the Spirit. We have to make Christ the center of our lives. It's a daily challenge. Die daily. Take up your cross daily and follow Him. Some of us took up our cross many years ago when we accepted Christ and we didn't think we had to keep taking it up, but it's a daily thing. Take up your cross daily and follow me because your flesh wants to win. And when your flesh wins, Christ's position in your life is made lesser. But we need to remember what John the Baptist said. He must increase. And I, my flesh, my desires, my will, my wants, what I think is best for my life, I must decrease. Because if you don't decrease, he will never increase in your life. You have to make that conscious decision every day to make Jesus the center of your life. Father, our heart and our desire, I hope, is that you are at the center of our life, the center of everything that we do. You're at the center of this church. You're at the center of our marriage. You're at the center of our our job, our work. Whether we work for uh, a secular, uh, non-Christian employer or not, you can still be at the center of what we do in our work. You can be present with us, leading us, guiding us, speaking to us in those down times. We can pray. We can fill ourselves up with the noise of the world or we can choose to ignore all of that and be present with you in silence, in solitude, dwelling with you in peace, hearing your heart. And sometimes we don't know what to do when we're faced with situations because we haven't been listening. 
It's, it's like trying to navigate going somewhere you've never been without listening to the directions. You just hope you'll figure it out. You'll recognize the warning signs. You'll recognize the street sign. You'll recognize the, the area of town you should be in. But the problem is we're trying to navigate this future for us, this life, and we haven't lived it yet. And so we don't know all of the twists and turns and obstacles we'll come in contact with. Your desire is to reveal all of those, that your word is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. That as we become people of the word of God, you illuminate what we should do, where we should go, how we should live. And you can speak to us and give us revelation when it comes to a specific issue in our life. But if we're not listening, if we're not fellowshipping with you, if we're not communing with you, we will never know. So, Lord, make it a priority in our life. Help us make it a priority. Give us that desire, God, to, to grow deeper. We're going to have to give up some things. We may have to give up some leisure time. And we absolutely should. If it means that we grow in our relationship with you. Lord, you gave all. We don't want to be people that only give a little. We want to give all to you. To surrender to you. To be fully wholly yours that's our desire and as we are in that position you can use us for your purposes use us to expand your kingdom in this world father you know what lay ahead of us this week the challenges the obstacles what we will face we pray god that you would go before us that you'll be all around us beside us that your presence will go with us and they, we will be beacons of light as we share the truth to our community that is desperate for truth. So we thank you for that, Lord. We pray, God, your hand of blessings upon those um, that are, are uh, able to give, uh, that give sacrificially, God, that you would bless us as we're a blessing to others. Those that are able to help this family in need, God, we pray that you would bless us with more so that we can be even bigger blessings. We thank you, God, for the work we're doing in the community, on the internet, the ministry, what you're accomplishing through us beyond the walls of this church. So be magnified, be glorified in everything that we do. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.